Hey, welcome to another episode of Powder Keg Igniting Startups, another live edition. We are on Facebook Live right now. So uh, if you're listening live, please feel free to tune in uh, and, and drop some questions in the comments. Uh, we'll be sharing that with both of our guests today. You're listening to episode 57 with two incredible guests on the podcast today. We've got David Hall, partner at Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, all the way from Washington, D.C. And then we have Mike Pruce, who is the founder of Visible, uh, based in Chicago, but with teams all over the, all over the world, not just the country. Uh, he's got a, an awesome startup that we're going to talk about. So here's how the show is going to go. The first few minutes, we're going to talk uh, to David about his journey. Uh, I've had the pleasure of being on tour with David uh, at least three or four times, maybe even five times with Rise of the Rest, touring around the country, talking to entrepreneurs all over the world, um, learning about them. Uh, David and the Rise of the Rest Seed Fund uh, just raised a $150 million seed fund with uh, people like Jeff Bezos and Howard Schultz, uh, investing these entrepreneurs around the country, specifically in areas outside of Silicon Valley. Uh, and then we'll have a chance to hear from Mike Pruce, who's going to tell us a little bit about Visible. Um, David and I will have a chance to ask him some questions about what he's building there at Visible. And in the last uh, 10 minutes or so, Mike will have a chance to ask questions of David. Uh, it's going to be an action-packed show, and we're going to kick things off with David. Uh, first of all, David, thanks for being here, man. Uh, it's really good to have you. Matt, it is great to finally make this happen. We've been planning this for years, and <laughs> I, it's, 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 just, it's an honor to be on with you, A, and B. It's, it's great to see. I've seen what you do on, on, for us and with us on the Rise of the Rest tours, having been a longtime partner, and it's great to, to sort of to return the favor and, and be on Powder Cake. Well, and with that, it would not be uh, you and me duo if we didn't get a selfie. Of course, we're always taking the selfie on the stage. I got your fist bump right here, man. Um, and then also without an introduction. Uh, so I don't always get the chance to do a full introduction with you on stage, but I thought I would take a moment right here to give a little bit of background on you because I think it'll give some really good context for the discussion. Uh, I've learned that you are a Baton Rouge, Louisiana native. Uh, you got your uh, bachelor's in economics at Morehouse College, graduated magna cum laude, and got your MBA in business from Harvard Business School. Uh, you worked in business development, financial analysis, and M&A for companies like Akamai, The Washington Post, and Morgan Stanley. Uh, board observer for many companies, including Revolution Money, Vinfolio, Coopers, uh, many, many others. Uh, you've been on the Rise of the Rest tours. I think you've been on the most tours other than Steve Case himself. Uh, and I think the only one you missed was due to the birth of your son, which is a totally legit excuse. Uh, you started there at Revolution in 2006, um, and that fund uh, of Revolution has invested more than a billion dollars in companies based outside of Silicon Valley since 2005. And now, with this new seed fund at Rise of the Rest Seed Fund, you have $150 million at your disposal. Well, ostensibly some of that's already deployed, uh, but from entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos and Sheila Johnson, Howard Schultz, uh, it's really, really a pleasure to have you here. Is there, are there any major career highlights that I missed in that introduction, David? You, you, you hit everything. The only other huge career highlight for me was getting married to an amazing wife who's been supportive of me flying all around the country and talking to entrepreneurs, but you hit all the, all the highlights. Awesome job. He, You're good at this. <laughs> Done it once or twice with you. And uh, it, it's been really cool uh, to get to know you, you know, as I mentioned over the years here. Um, some of the things I haven't had a chance to talk to you about is uh, some of your earlier, uh, earlier days, even going back to a teenager. I know you were into a lot of things. Uh, you've mentioned that you're involved in student government. You were involved in plays early on. Um, you also uh, earned the title most likely to succeed when you were in high school, which clearly has panned out for you. Um, what is it that you think gave you that drive uh, early on uh, in your, in your, I mean, I don't know if you can call your high school or your career. I guess that is your career, your early career. What gave you that drive where your student body even said you're the most likely to succeed? Yeah, well, first, first I want to say that it, 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 it was an honor being voted that a hundred years ago by my peers, but the reality is like, you know, like a lot of kids, I had great parents. I had, you know, I was really blessed to have uh, an amazing family and an amazing support system that kind of enabled me to dream really big and dream, dream to do things that, that, that they, that my folks, my grandparents, that they never had a chance to do. And, and it is, it, it, it was an awesome freedom to be able to dream and, and be and 
and enter into things that, that were, you know, debate, play, you know, like theater, student government, all these things were so interesting to me and, you know, helped to feed my, my like hyper extroverted tendencies. Um, but, but to me, you know, it was really honorable. It was a big honor to, for my student body to vote for me as, as most likely to succeed. They, they felt that there was something in me that was capable of doing more than, than, than sort of the average Joe and, or Jane. And that, that gave me a lot of, it's something that's lingered in the back of my head as, as you're making lots of these little minor decisions since high school. But the reality is it's, you know, I, I, I like doing well. I like working hard. I like seeing the results of, of hard work sort of materialize into new things, better things, into leaving institutions better than, than, than when I started it, working in them. And it's just constantly been something I've been attracted to. Well, and I think your student government uh, chops that you built up there, clearly you've continued to develop those skills because one of the things I've seen you do in all of these cities, I mean, just on this last tour in places like Memphis and in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, engaging with entrepreneurs there to, to talk to them about how to raise their first round of capital and giving them feedback uh, seeing you interact with these founders, one of the things that you seem to have a knack for is relating with people. Is that something that you've always has always kind of come naturally to you, like say was in your DNA, or is that something that you've sort of learned to develop over time? It's a little bit of both. I mean, like, the the essence of it, I'd say I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that it comes pretty naturally. I, I, I like talking to people. I like hearing their stories. As, as I've gotten older and, and as I've developed in, in my career, like the, the nature and the understanding, finding common ground for people in, in conversations to me is the biggest key to being able to have a level of conversation and, and a level of relating to them that, that makes them comfortable to share. And, you know, for my, for my job today as an investor, it's, it's, it's pertinent. It's, it's, it's critical for me to be able to go in and have an honest dialogue with, with an entrepreneur and be able to figure out both the things that they're telling me directly, the things that their body language is signaling and, and be able to have good inference into the things that they're not telling me. And those were all skills honed, you know, since I was five years old talking to the, the grocery store checkout lady and trying to figure out what, what you know, how, how, how I can understand sort of what's making her tick. And so, <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's been, it's been a huge success and something that I've learned how to develop and learn to be a little bit more insightful, but, but luckily it, it's always come pretty, pretty easily for me. No, that's good. I, one of the things I've seen you do is, is you're just genuinely interested in people. And I think uh, the more founders and even investors kind of, can develop that skill set. I think that's even like a Dale Carnegie principle, right? Like be genuinely interested in people. Um, that, that's one of the things I've seen you just have core to your DNA. Always asking people about them. Um, you know, usually it takes a while for you to get around to rise of the rest and what you do and how you guys engage. You're always first thinking about, you know, what, what is it that makes this entrepreneur tick? And then how can you help that person? Which uh, I think goes a long way. Yeah, for sure. Everybody has a story and the, the more you, everybody has a story and everybody wants to be heard. And I think that the more that you enable them to tell you their story, they're, they're unbelievably open and unbelievably forthcoming with the good, the bad, the ugly. And I think the discretion of being able to pick out what is, what is at least as it relates back to, to the investor role, what is bad and ugly and even good that's negative from an investment perspective because it's all sort of part of their, their collective story and, and, and deserves both an audience but also deserves like an empathetic ear. Absolutely. Well, and you've talked to a lot of entrepreneurs. You've been on six of the seven tours at Rise of the Rest and um, you've been in communities like New Orleans, uh, like Indianapolis, as I mentioned, you know, Memphis and, and Birmingham, uh, of course, Nashville. Uh, are there any similarities you see in these tech communities themselves, uh, looking at uh, these sort of second and third tier tech hubs around the country? Yeah, the most common similarity I see in, in, in a lot of these cities is this desire for community necessarily above, uh, above individual success. This, this really deep notion that says, you know, a rising tide will lift all companies. And I think that you know, a couple of successes like Shipped in, in, in Birmingham or like Exact Target in Indianapolis 
really put those cities on the map and 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 give every other entrepreneurial opportunity uh, or, or or founder in those cities a little bit more lift and make it that much easier for them to do well. And it's really important for for founders to to network and create this deep network density as a community because that that only helps make it more efficient for venture capitalists flying in from San Francisco to spend you know a day in Birmingham when there's five companies to meet. If, if you know they're coming to meet ships, but but for ship and the folks at ship to say, hey, there's two other companies that you guys should absolutely meet. Might not necessarily result in an investment, but definitely results in putting putting more companies on the radar of of top tier investors. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I I've definitely experienced that myself. Some of those similarities. Um, I, I'm curious though, as you talk to these companies, have you seen any major differences between these communities as you've gone from city to city? You, you know, it's funny. Like, so. Every city has their own uniqueness, and, and, and instead of leveraging the differences and instead of being sort of apologetic for their city, seeing them sort of claim whatever either the, the benefits or the challenges that they've uniquely had to face and, and sort of execute on those is really interesting. For example, mm-hmm. in New Orleans, you know, Hurricane Katrina created one of the most unbelievable urban plights in the United States' history. And, and as a result, New Orleans had to rebuild its entire education system. So what ended up happening is lots of Teach for America alums moved and, and sort of set up shop in New Orleans and really created this new ed tech hub because they, they would teach, do Teach for America. They would leave. They would found these companies that were dealing with everything from instructional design to sort of intervention for behavior challenges. And they really created a little mini ed tech culture in New Orleans all based on the ramifications of a horrible, catastrophic event, but now have yielded some really interesting new companies. You, you, you look at that with, with looking at one of our investments in a company called Siva Technologies. Siva is based in uh, Detroit, and the founder of Siva, one of the founders, was a former Chrysler mechanic who had, had, had been tackling really tough problems for Chrysler for years. He retired and then came up with this way of, of helping um, – autonomous vehicles clean their sensors because mud and dirt and snow really screw up an autonomous vehicle if, if they can't their sensors can't can't properly see he then partnered with his daughter who was a technology executive at Microsoft and started a new company manufacturing these these sensor cleaning uh, mechanisms for cars and, and other autonomous vehicles out of Detroit so it totally makes sense for for a, a auto you know an automotive industry veteran to restart his, his the second phase or the third phase really of his career out of Detroit. So it's really interesting to see how there's some that totally makes sense. Detroit automotive makes sense. But 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 the the really interesting thing is seeing how new things pop up in in places like EdTech in New Orleans. It's fascinating to see. Yeah, that's really cool. Are you generally kind of looking for a specific trend when you go into a city? Like when you come to Indianapolis, are you like, oh, we are very interested in marketing technology? Or is it uh, more of a, hey, we know there's cool stuff happening in Indianapolis. Let's go and just find the best companies there. Well, so it's, it's kind of three things, right? Thing number one, if, if there are some natural company in, uh, or, or city or regional industries that make sense to, to, to be launched from that city. So kind of ag tech in places like Des Moines kind of makes sense, right? Yeah, um, happy to really exploit that and understand that. But then, but, but then there are two other things, right? And a lot of these cities, they're really good public and private research universities that may or may not be sort of exactly in the city, but sort of proximal or regionally, regionally accessible to the city. Seeing what comes out of those, those universities based on, you know, like, like the, the, the language uh, application Duolingo came out of Carnegie Mellon because that's where, like, the professor was. And so seeing how those types of mini sort of cottage industries are created from IP that comes out of, out of universities is really, really something that we've taken note of a couple times. And then the third fact that I think is more, more recent phenomenon is you're seeing travel spouses, you know, husband or wife has to move for work and they're going from, you know, Google's headquarters in San Francisco to some, you know, one of their other outposts and the, the spouse who travels who may be a technologist themselves is like, I find myself in St. Louis and I don't have, you know, 
my community. And so they start to build it. And we, we've invested in a, a swimsuit e-commerce platform actually based in St. Louis that was a result of a travel spouse leaving New York City and partnering with a, with another local founder and, and creating this amazing women's swimsuit company. So you see lots of ways for these communities to happen, both sort of um, organically because of the, the, the industries that have been in, in the region for a while, but also transplants come and bring their, 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 their thinking with them. And, and you always see new technology spring out of, you know, the next generation of entrepreneurs that are graduating from university. Those are some cool examples. And definitely you see a lot of that grit and hustle uh, in the founders, just like you would find in the Valley or, or New York, sometimes even with a little bit more grit and hustle, a little bit more of a chip on their shoulder. Um, you know, I, I've heard you say one of the things uh, that you would have told your 15-year-old self uh, was to maybe uh, have a little bit more fun and, and maybe enjoy some more balance in the journey. Uh, do you think that that uh, advice applies to founders who are in the trenches of a, a startup? Yeah, well, I mean, so, so may, maybe not necessarily guys under have more fun, but definitely seek more balance, right? Figure out the ways to to re-energize the parts of, of the journey. Because being an entrepreneur, I, I, I always tip my hat to entrepreneurs because that is a it's seven days by 24 hours type of job, and you're always on. And figuring out ways to, to get that recharge in a meaningful manageable, positive way is, is really important. And, and so I, I think that, you know, the, the, the very simple way of saying have more fun actually does translate. But if, if it's unplugged for a couple of hours and take a hike or do a run or play with your kids, you, you've got to create that distance because otherwise the, the, the burnout factor is so much higher when, when there's, no, there's no counterbalance it's not going to be, you know, day for day or hour for hour, but if for 20 minutes you've unplugged, you've turned off your phone and you're focused on reading a book to your child, that interaction should give you a little bit of charge to, to load back up and do another couple hours of work at the, at the end of the day. I, I think it's, it's imperative for entrepreneurs, for any type of professional, to be able to strive and find that balance. It's, it's good for mental health. It's good for physical health. It's good for emotional health. It's good for maintaining relationships. And when all of those other things start to go, go negatively, the performance of the company, the performance of the executive tends to fall pretty precipitously. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's always benefits to that as well. For example, I know you've become an expert at sharks as your son has become more more of an expert at, at uh, sharks himself uh, as you were kind of retelling. Oh my gosh, my, my, my kids know every fact there is to know about sharks. So <laughs> I, I, I am, I've become a little expert on, on all of their hundreds of teeth that regrow every six weeks or whatever the number is well now when a deal comes in that's related to sharks you're going to be the the partner that they that rise of the rest calls on for this shark tech startup uh, i i'm the megalodon expert here <laughs> i love it uh, well what are some of the other advice that you give to founders uh, besides just kind of keeping some balance uh what's some of your most frequently given ex advice to portfolio company founders yeah so i i think particularly for our founders, which find themselves outside of New York, Boston, San Francisco, generally, the first biggest piece of advice I give them is don't apologize from being where you're from. I mean, you, you see that, 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 you see an apologetic stance when they're pitching their company. And a lot of that manifests itself in, in, in having these, these strange comparisons where, you know, their number one Valley-based competitor just raised a $50 million round from, you know, top tier brand name firms and, and they, they want to go out and do an ICO because they've got to be competitive and they need to raise $50 million themselves. And that's, that's just not the truth. I mean, like you, generally it's, it's about building the best company. And if you can build the best company in, in a, in a place like Nashville, in a place like Miami, in a place like Raleigh Durham, you should, you should double down there and your, your cost advantage is going to be greater. And, and, and your ability to really stay focused on the mission as opposed to having to always worry and look over your shoulder about the opportunity cost of what you're not doing is, 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 is not so much and not so, so top of mind of a challenge. 
Um, I think the other piece that I always tell them is hire smarter than they are. I mean, always, always look for people that are going to challenge them. No one is going to question their ability to run the company or, or, or be the founder or chief executive of a company. But, but if you under hire and you David, I think we may have lost your audio there. I'm, I'm not sure uh, we caught the last half of your answer. Um, uh, I'm not sure if maybe it's the headset or, uh, or, or if we're connected. Um, but I think this might be a good transition to bring Mike on while we figure out what might be, be going on with the, the microphone. Mike Pruce, can you hear me? I can hear you loud and clear. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Absolutely. Maybe David just had some connection issues. Well, with that, let's bring on uh, our next guest. And hopefully we can get David back on here um, while, while he, we figure out some technical difficulties there. Uh, our next guest, I'm super excited to have on. We actually had him on the show two episodes ago, but I thought this was such a relevant episode to bring him back for um, because he's got a very interesting story. I actually first met our next guest um, when he was still a senior in college down at Indiana University in Bloomington. Uh, I had the pleasure of helping recruit him into a program called the Orr Fellowship Program, which was an entrepreneurial fellowship program based here in Indiana, meant to help keep talent in the state of Indiana. He, of course, joined a team, uh, a high-growth tech team. Uh, he is very qualified to be in the Orr Fellowship, very qualified to be an entrepreneur. Uh, he joined a team that kind of outgrew the ecosystem here in Indiana. At the time, there was not enough connectivity to capital. There was not enough scale in terms of uh, cloud and hosting power because it was, at the time, the fastest growing company in the history of the internet. And that company, Formspring, moved out to San Francisco. So I was recruiting Mike to try to stay here in Indiana, ended up uh, recruiting him to go out to the valley. He ultimately went out to the valley, uh, had an awesome experience out there, uh, crazy rocket ship ride at Form Spring, and would love to get some of his perspective on that. Um, but then came back to the Midwest to start a company called Visible. Uh, and if you tuned into episode 55, you've heard a little bit about Visible. Uh, but if you didn't have a chance to tune into that, uh, Visible is a stakeholder reporting platform. It's used over 2,000, used by over 2,000 businesses, and it's used to kind of help keep all of your team members, investors, and stakeholders engaged uh, through some beautiful reports. Um, but I. I, I don't want to give too much uh, about the platform away because I want to give Mike a chance to kind of pitch uh, what Visible is doing today and sort of uh, a little bit of background on that company. So first and foremost, Mike, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here, man. Matt, thank you for having me. I would love to say first time caller, long time listener, but that is no longer <laughs> true. So uh, excited to be back on and uh, jamming with you guys today. Absolutely, man. Good to be here. Can, yeah, you, can so, you tell me a little bit uh, about, uh, about Visible? Yeah, Visible uh, is, a, is a web application that is uh, helping empower entrepreneurs and founders and other high growth companies uh, report uh, data and updates, successes and challenges to their most uh, important uh, stakeholders. So that stakeholder could be your wife or husband, that could be an uh, angel investor, a venture fund, uh, really anyone that's taken a chance on you and, and um, been part of that journey. We help companies uh, share that data directly back to to the people that matter most in, in their company. I love it, man. Uh, and you said, uh, I saw that you serve over 2,000 companies right now. Um, where's yep. kind of the sweet spot for you guys? What stage company and uh, and what's sort of the, the pain point that you're helping solve, the, the main pain points? Yeah, I would say, you know, most of our customers are maybe two people just getting started in a garage all the way up to, you know, two, 300 person companies. So uh, in terms of like a true sweet spot, you know, I think it's it's anyone from 10 to 100 employees. Uh, but the one interesting thing about Visible is that it's not just a problem in the Valley or, or San Francisco. It's it's a global problem. Um, we, our designer, Kieran, put this awesome graphic together of uh, location of where all of our customers are. And we have customers in every continent except Antarctica. So we'll probably be doing some prospecting there soon just to say we, we have all seven. Nice. Uh, but uh, yeah, and, and the problem really is, is it's pretty simple, right? I have uh, all these different disparate data, you know, uh, apps that I'm using to run my business, things like QuickBooks or Xero, Salesforce, Stripe. Uh, and I want to be able to tell the story of that data uh, and report it back to my investors. Uh, the one thing, you, you know, when we started Visible is 
how can I effectively communicate with my investors and leverage them for their expertise? Uh, and we just found that uh, email was inefficient or it's happening across email and spreadsheets and text messages and one-off meetings. How do we give a, a really professional and beautiful looking report that's super simple to put together? So that was the, the impetus for doing it. Um, but yeah, to kind of give you a long-winded answer, uh, you know, 10 to 100 person companies, but really all across the world. Nice, man. Oh, and I know that we're, yeah. we're a user. I would not say we're a power user yet, but uh, I think we will be soon. We've, we've been kind of updating a lot of our other systems that would feed into Visible to make sure that all that data is clean. Because uh, I, I know it's one of those yeah. things where it's like uh, garbage in, garbage out. <laughs> if, if you don't have clean data going <laughs> into the system, you're not going to have clean data coming out. Um, but it, it's been a really cool thing, uh, and I've heard I've heard from a lot of investors that get reports from Visible that it's uh, it's nice. You know, it's it you can kind of fully customize the report. Um, it's not just like a standard uh, update, which is really nice and makes it easy to kind of go through that entire investor update process. And as someone who's transitioning over from creating a new email from scratch every time, I'm very much looking yeah. forward to the software fully automating that process. Yeah, awesome. Good to hear. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I, I was wondering if you could give me a little bit of background. Um, you, you know, we were talking with David a little bit about uh, his background coming from Louisiana, obviously going mm -hmm. on to uh, the D.C. area and now traveling all over the country, seeing these different tech communities. Uh, you've spent some time in the Valley, but also in Indianapolis, Chicago as yep. well now with um, Visible. What are some of the, um, the similarities that you've seen across these ecosystems? And then what are some of the differences? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so you know, I went to grew up in the Midwest in the Chicago suburbs, and, and uh, went to Indiana, and then from there, uh, my company Form Spring actually ended up moving, like you said, from Indianapolis out to, to San Francisco. And I think one of the biggest things that uh, you read about all the time, but really surprised me when I first moved out to San Francisco, is how willing people are to help and meet up with you. And that's just like something that still just kind of shocks me to this day is it really does have that uh, pay it forward mentality and, and uh, you can surround yourself with just incredible people uh, that you would think would never give you the time of day. Uh, and, and I'm starting to see that across all these different ecosystems as well. And I'm sure David could attest to this, but uh, you know, each metropolitan area or city or, or location kind of has its own culture and vibe. Um, so it's kind of hard to compare and contrast, you know, apples to, to oranges, but uh, that was kind of the biggest thing. But, you know, even just being plugged into the Indianapolis community uh, and all the work you've done with, with Powder Keg and, and some of the other people there, uh, you know, has that same mentality where there's one kind of cohesive um, culture you can kind of wrap your arms around. And um, same with Chicago. You know, Chicago, uh, 1871 was kind of the the jumping off point for Chicago in terms of a, a really big epicenter of where people meet up and uh, do events and meet each other at work, uh, get advice. So um, each city is different, but all in all, I think, you know, they're all around kind of that community building aspect. Well, I wanted to wait for uh, David to hop back on to ask some more questions about Visible. And I think we have uh, David back on now. David, are you with us? I am with you. Can you hear me? Yeah, right on, man. Cool. Good to have you back. Sorry about that. Um, glad we could rock and, rock and roll with the punches. Um, Perfect. Thanks. You have, you have any questions for uh, Mike on Visible and, and what he's doing there? Yeah. yeah well, well. Yeah. So first, your 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 Medium page is amazing, and I, I spent a few a few minutes going through some of your Medium posts, and I think that that that's that's one of the more interesting ways of of sort of putting your company on the map. How do you find getting the story uh, about about the company and and sort of telling the visible story in a way that resonates to sort of people who don't know you and people that your marketing folks aren't targeting. How, how do you, how do you articulate that in a way that that's a discoverable and be sort of meaningful? That's a great question. I really wish I could take credit for the medium page too, um, but it's not me at all. So that is uh, probably Matt and Andrew on our team who've done an incredible job with, uh, with our marketing. I, you know, one of the things that I, uh, we build on the company uh, is just like, how do, what do we enjoy engaging with and reading and, and how do we like to be, you know, marketed to ourselves as, you know, um, buyers of different products. And we have this idea of like a really authentic voice. And I think that's one of the big things that we've tried to incorporate into everything that we do is having this level of authenticity and just kind of being real. 
but not being like, but also kind of towing the line of trying to be professional as well. Cause there's, I think a fine line of like authenticity and professionalism. Uh, but we always try to have a super authentic voice. And at the end of the day, we're never trying to pedal or, or push visible on someone. Uh, we're just trying to educate and give some insight and just create value for, for founders. Uh, we're doing a, a relaunch of our email uh, newsletter that we've been religiously sending out every week. Um, and we're calling it the Founders Forward um, probably next week going forward. And it really, it's just kind of uh, taking a page out of that Mattermark, Mattermark book for almost where uh, it's just kind of curating and giving you the most relevant information about um, building your business, whether that's raising money, hiring people, uh, attacking some sort of problem you might be encountering. So in terms of reaching people, we try to do really creative things that maybe are are uh, a little different. Uh, we, we've done a lot of word of mouth as well. So one of the big ways we get a lot of our customers is is really word of mouth, either through uh, founders referring other founders or investors telling uh, founders about Visible. So we try to give a creative spin, something a little bit more unique and keep that authentic voice. Yeah, I mean, it's a heck of a problem that you're tackling. And, and I, I think yeah. like, like fostering seamless and, and really high impact communication you know from from sort of one to many where where the constituencies are all a little bit different and everybody's looking for a slightly different chart or graph or data point it's 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 really not a simple task to solve so so being yeah. able to i i think i think for which leads me to the next question about sort yeah. of the depth of integration that you guys have to look into to like you know cross system to sort of start automating a lot of this reporting functionality. How do you think about that from a tech perspective? And, you know, every day there's a new, you know, finance application or a new CRM mm -hmm. that's coming live. How do you prioritize what's gonna come next under the platform? Yeah, that's a really good question. And one that kind of wraps my brain every day and, and the team as well, where it's, once you have integrations, this is kind of the, the beauty of them, right? Like they're great, people love them. You can create a really great experience pretty quickly but they also expect every integration in the world. So you get a customer that's like, hey, you need to work with 90% of the tools I need. What about the other 10%? And, uh, you know, we prioritize integrations just kind of based on, you know, what does that ecosystem look like for, for that particular company? So, uh, you know, Stripe and QuickBooks are almost the de facto tools for finance and accounting for most companies until, you know, 10, even $20 million in revenue now. Uh, obviously, Salesforce and HubSpot have a lot of market share when it comes to uh, your CRM and how you're running your sales and marketing operations. Uh, and then, you know, we really kind of push Google Sheets as one of our, our big integrations because what we've just seen in general, is, and to Matt's point earlier, um, a lot of the data systems and, and data that you have set up as a company is kind of dirty. And so even just doing a direct integration, you're probably going to get bad data out. So most people are massaging or manipulating data in a Google sheet before they're even reporting on it. So we really kind of strive to say like, hey, data integrations are great because they're gonna help you know, alleviate some of that pain. And, and we do wanna get you to a point where it's seamless, but really the most important part is actually kind of the qualitative context mm -hmm. and just sending that update out, right? It's like, why did something happen? What can we, you know, what, why are things going really well or really bad? And supplementing that with data versus focusing on, on charts and data integrations because you know, a lot of times those are going to change in six months anyways, depending on, you know, where you are in your life cycle as a company. Yeah, very cool. Um, man, I don't want to keep, you know, I, I know how to do this pretty well, so no, I can keep, keep going. Keep, I can keep, keep, keep questions. Keep rolling, how, keep rolling, man. How, how, is, how is recruiting for you in Chicago? How are you finding the team that you need and, and where where are there, there gaps that you, you've got to look outside of Chicago to help fill? Yeah, so we have this kind of interesting um, aspect of Visible, and the the very short abridged version is uh, one of our core investors, Real Ventures in Montreal, actually was building this application internally just for themselves, and we ended up bringing on our CTO uh, Corel there, and he was really in love with this idea of, and I, I it's, it's been awesome of hiring talent anywhere uh, it exists. So we've taken this approach of we want to hire kind of the best and brightest um, and location shouldn't be in, uh, a part of that equation. And so we actually have team members all over Europe. Uh, we have team members in Chicago. And um, yeah, so to, to answer your question, uh, Chicago, you know, there's a, an amazing ecosystem here. There's a ton of big companies that you can recruit from now. And 
but we have, you know, we just brought on another team member in Indianapolis. So we actually have a distributed team as part of our uh, core value of, of what we want to build that visible. David, is that something that you've seen at some of the companies that you've talked to, um, just traveling around the country that there's, there's more distributed workforces than, uh, than you might find in say, uh, Bay area or New York city? Well, I mean, I, I think it's just a phenomenon of, of work in general. I mean, I think that you, you, you're seeing more people. I mean, our, our partnership is distributed. We've got partners in, in Minneapolis. We've got most of the, most of us are here, but I, I think you're, you're seeing people have to work and, and have to have work accommodate to, to, to where you can find the talent, where the talent lives, where the talent chooses to live. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the things we're seeing a lot, frankly, is, is that people are getting priced out of New York city in the Bay area and, and, and choose to, you know, want to live in places like Chicago and Minneapolis and Madison because because there's such a such a huge cost advantage. I think the big the biggest challenge we see to that frankly is C-suite reporting uh, uh, recruiting. You know, like it's mm -hmm. it, like the the junior staff and and sort of the the mid-level staff I think having them be distributed is is easier than maybe having sort of the the senior team also be distributed. I, th I think sometimes you need to have a little bit of a, a, a uh, HQ concentration, and and I think for for that it's actually hard to have a, a, a CMO that commutes from New York to Indianapolis, and and sometimes it's even hard to sort of extract them from a New York to 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 be in an Indianapolis or somewhere in the Midwest. But but we're seeing more of that because a lot of those folks that are are CMOs went to places like IU and are like, wow, it'd be really cool to be able to go home and 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 and. Get on a, and, and stop getting on planes at Thanksgiving and Christmas, but actually be able to live in my hometown or near my hometown, near my folks and my family, my support networks. Yeah, we call those boomerangs. Good term of art. <laughs> we, and and somehow got Mike to come back to the Midwest. Although I think I think there was a magnet there for him uh, as well to come back to the Midwest. Um, yeah, my wife. <laughs> best boomerang ever. Yeah, best, that, 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 that works. You see that happen a lot. That, that is very true. Well, uh, I, I wanted to kind of get a, a little dialogue going between both of you, uh, one from the founder side. And, and Mike, I know you have extensive knowledge of the, of the investor side of this equation, too, because that's what your product does. Um, but what are some of those things um, just from an investor entrepreneur relationship uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to be, we don't have to necessarily have this conversation be around the investor update emails, because I know there's more than just update emails that foster a relationship. But what are some of those things, and David, maybe you could kick us off. Um, what are some of those qualities or even habits that you've seen uh, founders have that has, have really helped develop into strong relationships with you as an investor? Yeah, I mean, I, I think for me, it's, it's kind of honest early often right like if you, if you if you're able to hit those three standards of communication honest like tell tell me the the whole story the whole truth what's actually happening uh you know what's honestly characterize the conversations that you've have you're having with either prospective investors or prospective customers that that goes a long way because it helps understand helps helps me understand is it a failure of the the story or the narrative is it a failure of the 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 meat, or is it a failure of the execution? All of which we can manage, but we and if we can't have honest conversation about it, we can't can't affect that. Part two is is on sort of early, right? Like it doesn't help me to tell me sort of midway that that, that the house burned down. Like like tell me that the house is on fire and we can do something about sort of solving and saving the things that that, that are the most valuable. And then the last piece of this is is, is frequency. Like like it. it Again, quarterly updates are nice and are maybe required in our legal docs, but there's a lot that happens over the course of a quarter, particularly for an early stage startup. And so being able to have that, that frequency and that habitual set of conversations either every two weeks, once a month, is just really important just so, so that the investor can, can have, you know, keep really good tabs on the company. If, if you're still, if you haven't met the company yet, and it's, it's sort of a prospective meeting, you know, I, I, it's, I always advise startups to start those conversations as early as possible. Tease the idea, see what they, you know, see what the, how, how that idea resonates with that investor. Because if like early no's for, for companies raising money are sometimes as valuable and, and helping to limit uh, the, the, 
the range of people that you've got to have conversations with just as much as sometimes getting a yes. Um, but the one caveat to that, though, is that, that we track, you know, endlessly. So you tell me, you know, a year ago that sales in 2018, by the end of the year, are going to be $5 million. When we meet in Q4 of 2018, I'm going to pull up the old deck and say, hey, you said that sales are going to be $5 million. Why are sales $2.2 million? What happened? So there is a slight risk to that, but but it's better to have, because now, now you've got a conversation. I was interested enough to, to, to take the first meeting. I'm interested enough to, to take the second meeting and interested enough to go back and compare the notes. So that I'm obviously interested. So the, the ability for you to go back and say, well, well, you know, sales were off for X, Y, and Z reasons is easily explainable, but you're going to have to explain it. What are some of the things, Mike, that founders are looking for from investors? You know, when a founder sends out an update email, um, you've got on one end of the spectrum, the investor that never hits reply, never uh, really gets involved in the business at all, and is just sort of there on the cap table. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you've got the investor that can be all up in your business every day, blowing up your cell phone, texting you. Uh, what's kind of that sweet spot, at least from your perspective as a founder, but then also working with 2,000 plus other founders as customers? Man, I wouldn't want either of those people on my That's why I said those are the two ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Um, you know, I think really what uh, founders want at the end of the day is reassurance uh, and and, and, and help, right? If you think about uh, a startup or a business like Visible or, or Powder Keg, uh, there's probably a million things going right and there's probably a million things going wrong. And the one big thing we try to educate our customers on and just the market in general is that sharing what's going wrong uh, or challenging is, is how you can get the most leverage and help from your investors because they've seen this movie before, right? It's but it's also the hardest for a company, right? Because you're admitting not failure, but that something's not going right. And that's scary uh, to kind of open that up because your view of the world is just your one company versus an investor, right? Like Rise of the Rest, where they have seen this hundreds, if not thousands of times. And, you know, they can jump in super early and, and help, whether that's an issue with customer churn or an employee issue where, you know, you think about churning get someone out of the business or hiring, right? So there's this, um, you know, idea of leverage and engagement and, and having your investors say like, hey, everything's gonna be okay, right? This has happened before, you're definitely not alone. Uh, but to get to that point, you know, you have to communicate with them. And to, to David's point, I guess, on, you know, kind of frequency and, and uh, just overall level of cadence, that I think that's important as well. Uh, the shorter, the better and probably the more frequent, the better. You know, I'm not saying every single day, but if, you know, one or two times a month uh, in a condensed update, investors are not going to read a long-winded 10-page narrative of what's going on. Uh, they want something kind of spoon-fed directly into their email inbox and uh, being able to engage with it there. So, uh, you know, we always try to say shorter, the better, more frequent, the better. It's just going to be easier for you to put it together in all honesty, too, and then some uh, narrative and novel of what's happened over the last quarter. Because usually when that happens, that means like something is going bad. You're trying to cover up something in the middle and then it's just, it's not good for anyone. D David, how do you like to engage in investor update emails or do you like to engage in investor update emails? Yeah, I'm, I'm the guy who's all up in your business. I want to know. I, 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 I think I, I love the email. I think the emails, we, we've actually established a little technology here that will ingest them for us automatically. And so we, we're really trying to use technology to keep tabs on, on sort of things that are going well, things that aren't going well. And I think that, I think Mike hits on a really important point. Like the low lights, for me, the highlights, the, the things that are going well, the things that are going up and to the right are always really interesting to, to hear. It's, it's less the, the headline and more the reasoning for those things, but for the low lights, the things that aren't going well, understanding those and getting involved in those early are really important for me. And, and so, so the, the frequency of that, I mean, monthly is the right, about the right cadence to have some kind of update, sort of yellow, green, red light update. Um, and and I, I, I really, you know, 
with the exception of like, you know, extreme things on the positive or negative side that need to be dealt with immediately, obviously the, those, those take precedence, but on a normal course, like a, a monthly email highlighting or, or really calling out highlights and lowlights are really important. I think the other thing that a lot of founders, you know, particularly early founders, new founders struggle with, and I think they'd all be better served to start thinking about this is, is tasking your, both your board members and your investors, particularly with certain tasks that fit within sort of their, 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 their know-how, their, their wheelhouse. And I, I think it's, you know, so for example, you don't ask the, the, the junior partner or, or junior analyst observer on your board to, you know, for C-level introductions, but like, hey, I need some help with like some reporting techniques. Can you send me four or five examples of really good board reports that I can start to use and, as I engage the, the board here? That's a great way to task a specific person with a specific duty, and they can they can fulfill that easily. For for sort of C-suite um, C-suite introductions for customers, going directly to some of your more senior board members or some of the the, the big wigs on your cap table, really easy ask. And and like I I really like would 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 want to persuade strongly the entrepreneurs to, to, to task people up with specific duties so that, that you're able to maximize and they don't feel like they're spending all of their time working with one particular company. And is that something that you'd expect to see come through in an investor update email or is that something you'd, you'd expect to see kind of come in, in more of a personalized from the founder type of ask? Well, a little bit of both. There are always going to be general asks, right? We're, sure. we're looking for, you know, a couple of things, you know, one, two, three, we're looking for an introduction to XYZ company. If anybody has it, that'd be great. We're looking, we're, we're interviewing auditors. Anybody have any good experience with auditors? Like those are good. But, but I think that a lot of those should be followed up with specific emails to particularly those who've already leaned in and said, look, let me, let me know how I can help. Let me know how I can be most impactful to the company. And, and if, if they've asked, like take them, take them up on their offer by, by all means. Absolutely. Well, I, um, I, I can see we're, we're almost at time here. Before we break, um, I was hoping that uh, maybe, Mike, you could uh, close with some advice. And then, David, I wanted, I, I wanted to ask you for some advice as well. Um, Mike, my, my question from you is I, I read recently, and I think this was on the Visible uh, Medium blog, which is uh, it's never been easier to start a company, but it's also never been harder to build one. I think that was from Naval Ravikant from AngelList. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the competition for capital and talent is greater than ever. Uh, obviously, your product helps with that. But if you were to kind of give one piece of parting advice on how to compete for that capital, uh, what would that one piece of advice be? Yeah, uh, I think biggest piece of advice is, uh, especially if you're, if you're, really thinking about raising capital as part of this question, I guess, is, is fundraising really is kind of a 24-7, 365 thing, right? It's Fundraising is like one of those things you're always raising and you're actually never raising, right? Because if you tell an investor you're raising, that's like kind of weird. But so it's like you're always raising and never raising. And, uh, you know, another uh, thing that's, you know, super common that we love to reiterate, right, is people love to invest in lines and not dots. So invest in relationships early, uh, even if it's maybe someone that's outside of the, the funding zone for your company now, that person certainly will be in 12 or 18 or 24 months. And having a warm relationship and just kind of dripping them um, like you would uh, uh, and nurturing a, a lead in your sales funnel, same thing with investors, right? I'm not saying give them and open them up everything in terms of, hey, here's what exactly what we're doing and, and what's going right and wrong but kind of give them that high level sizzle and keep them engaged so that when you are fundraising for the next round, uh, you have super warm people that kind of, that know your trajectory and you're not starting from scratch. Cause then what's going to happen is, you know, you're going to start from scratch and then you have meeting one, meeting two, meeting three, meeting four, because they're going to try to connect those dots versus if you already have, um, you know, a, a auditable kind of log of what your business has done. Uh, you're ready to go from, you know, hit the ground running, create a lot of momentum and, and create a really good process for yourself. That's great advice, particularly um, important for founders that aren't in Silicon Valley or in New York, where maybe you'd be bumping into investors kind of on a regular basis in meetings and giving kind of the ad hoc update. Um, using a, a digital tool like email can definitely help a ton. I appreciate that uh, advice. And David, I was going to ask you for some advice uh, for investors. 
why should investors be paying attention to this middle of the country region or the, you know, quote unquote, the rest uh, of the country outside of Silicon Valley in New York? And uh, beyond the why, like how should these investors be looking to invest in these in these high value companies? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that the, you know, we've talked about this a bunch today, you know, you're seeing so many trends from the boomeranging of talent out, out of out of the coastal epicenters, back into hometowns and sort of other big cities like Chicago. And, and you're, you're seeing that trend happen and accelerate, you're seeing, you know, you guys read, read the, the, the press just as much as I do about sort of the costs of operating a business in, in some of these big, big coastal cities. And you're seeing opportunity and like we've never seen before in, in sort of the heartland and, and the ability to have and, and harness that into startups is huge. It's huge for, for college graduates. It's huge for communities that, that are dying and, and, and need some of this new talent need some of this resurgence to come and, and start a company because you know, when you start a company, it's not just the, the 20 people that you hire. It's sort of the coffee shop that you guys go to, the bars that you go to, the, the lunch places that you go to. Like it really starts to lift the community. And, and if you want to be an economic development like participant, like working for a startup is a huge way to do it. Um, the, the how on that is always going to be a little bit more challenging because it, it's, 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 there, there's such a relativistic perspective about, about sort of always wanting to, to fit the, the Silicon Valley growth model, which frankly, a lot of startups outside of those, those, those coastal hubs aren't able to, to meet. And so you see frequently, for example, you'll see a series A, a Valley company that would be a series A or a seed company ending up being a series A company outside of a the coast because it's just taken a little bit longer. The flip side of that is often those companies are either further along because they, they've had to be or have generated revenue and have sort of proven out a bit of a business model because they've had to. And, and so you're seeing a slightly different um, set of metrics for investing. The, the other big thing is is sort of the, the difference between the types of investors and, and what, 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 what determines the great proof point. Right, like it, it, because of the way that a lot of these companies outside of the coast has had to be funded, you're you're going to see more revenue traction, but sometimes that's at at the expense of faster growth that comes with bigger you know bigger fundraising, and so you're going to have to merit sort of um, growth versus revenue traction is that constant push or pull that that often investors that come from outside of these regions that come into them are are, are having that having to be disabused of as they come into the into the regions to try to invest like these companies want to grow typically slower but into just as ripe types of market opportunities so i i wouldn't let that dissuade investors from looking at at, at investments in rising opportunity rising cities that's a really helpful perspective and i'm sure we could have two more hours of conversation just on that topic uh but that is it for today's show. I, I do want to thank you again, David and Mike, uh, for being on today's show. I want to encourage all of the listeners or viewers, if you're watching on Facebook Live, uh, make sure you give them a follow, both of them a follow on Twitter. I think David is at dhall3 on Twitter, and Mike is just at Mike Pruce on Twitter. We'll make sure we link that up uh, here on Facebook Live, which again is at facebook.com slash powderkeg. And even if you're watching a replay of this, make sure you drop any questions or comments you've got there below, because uh, I'll be sending this link out to both David and Mike here uh, after the weekend. And uh, if they feel so inclined, they may jump in and answer some of your questions too. Um, for more resources and the, the show notes on today's episode, some of the people, some of the resources mentioned, we'll make sure we link all of that up in the show notes at powderkeg. Uh, make sure you tune in next week because we'll have another episode with another great guest from uh, outside of the Valley, uh, as well as a couple more entrepreneurs who are building great companies from areas all around the world. Uh, thank you again so much. And thank you guys for being a part of today's show. Thanks a lot, Matt. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, David. See you guys. Thanks. Thanks, Mike. Bye. Bye.